So, we are continuing our series in the book of 1 John chapter 4, all right? So, if you have your Bibles, I thought that was somebody back there just yelping for joy for a second, like, yeah! Uh, 1 John chapter 4, if you don't have your Bibles, we'll also have it on the screens, but if you have your Bibles, we will be in this book, or in this passage today, and... Um, what we do is we go through the passage verse by verse, and we kind of bounce around a little bit, but this will be our section as we work our way through 1 John, and we just have a few more weeks left before we're done with this book. Um, but I should share with you guys, since today is our partner meeting, at J-Road we have a few core values. Um, you know, one of our core values is being the church. One of our core values is vulnerability. Um, and one of our core values, of our five core values, is intimacy with Jesus, Okay intimacy with Jesus. We like to use that language. We like that wording because it's a close walk with Jesus. And that's what we believe every believer should have is their own personal close walk with Jesus. We're, we're walking with him throughout the week, right? So Sundays, Sundays is a time we get together. We all corporately worship God, but y'all could worship God on Tuesday in your bedroom, right? Or on Wednesday on the way to work. Um, we come here and hear God's word and we dive into God's word, but all of us should be getting into God's word throughout the week, right? And kind of feeding on God's word because God's word is living and active and sharper than ever, any two-edged sword, as, as the word said. So we value that. Um, <clears throat> you know, the walk with Jesus is the backbone of everything we do here and trying to get our people to walk with Jesus very closely. Um, we want every single one of you to be prayer warriors. That's not a title that should just be for a select few, but all of us should be prayer warriors. Um, and every single one of you should be using your gifts in the church. And we want every one of you to hunger for and obey the Bible, right? Like be in the Bible, know it, study it, live your life. And we build everything around that. And <clears throat> one thing that I would add to that list that is vitally important to be walking with Jesus is loving one another, right? And this has been a theme now for like five weeks as we go through like the different sections of First John. And Brian's talked about it a couple times and preached about it a couple times. I preached about it a couple times. And, and once again, we're here where John is reminding the readers for the 100th billion time to love one another. And it's like as a church, why, you know, I get it, right? We need 100,000 reminders because we don't always love each other well. And, and so it's encouraging us to love one another. <clears throat> love your fellow man. Love each other. Love the needy. Love the people in our workplaces. Just being people of love. And that's kind of what this passage is about. So I'm going to read it in its entirety, and you guys could follow along. I believe it's going to be broken up into two chunks for us. So here's the first chunk. And, um, yeah, 12 through 16. It says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Amen? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is what? <clears throat> God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. 
and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we in the world, in this world. So as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Okay? Let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll kind of break this down. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's so good. It's so alive and active and has the power to transform those who obey it and live by it. So let it soak in. God, guide our understanding. God, I pray that we write down notes. God, I pray that we underline things in our Bibles. God, I pray that we have a hunger to do what your word says. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so the theme today, like the first part we mentioned is about loving one another, but the theme today, as you guys can see from this passage, is mutually abiding with God. All right? Mutually abiding with God. So to abide, and I use this word sometimes a lot, and some people may not know what it is, and I understand that, but to abide is a verb, all right? It is active. Abiding in Christ is not a feeling or a belief, but something we do. It means to remain or to stay with. It entails far more than the idea of a continued belief in a Savior. It's saying, I'm choosing to abide. I'm choosing to stay, remain, dwell within Jesus. And it's very active. Um, and you might be saying, you know, I believe in Jesus, and I'm saying, well, that's good, but abiding is different than simply believing, right? Believe in Jesus, that's good, but abiding is consciously being in the presence of God, seeking out the presence of God. Um, in mutual abiding, like in verse 12, it means that God abides in you and you abide in him, and it has to be both. And here's the thing. After salvation, as you know, after we're saved, we are given the gift. What's the gift that God gives us? What's that? Grace, love. But what's the one thing God gives us that actually lives within us? The Holy Spirit. Once we get saved, God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit, which is part of the Trinity, so it's equal with God, to live and indwell us. And so... God doesn't abide with us one day and not another day. Like, God's Spirit dwells with us, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of judgment. It's like a seal. It's a promise. And as the verse says, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. So God is always abiding in us. But throughout our lives, we have to make a conscious effort to abide in Him. You know, because he, even though we have the Spirit, what does that hymn say? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Anybody old hymn people that know these things? It's like we're prone to wander, right? We're prone to step off the path. And it's like, oh no, we got to constantly choose to abide in him and walk with him. And then in verse 13 um, in our passage, it says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his what? His spirit. So spirit's living in us. So Choosing to abide in God is constantly seeking God's presence all day, every day of our lives. 
And it's a struggle at times. That's why we say spiritual disciplines, because we discipline ourselves to follow after God, because it's not always going to come easy, right? It's the same way we discipline our lo- ourselves to love our spouses, because if anybody who's been married longer than two months knows that we, if we drift one way or another, we're going to drift towards being a bad spouse as opposed to just casually drift into being a really good spouse, right? You don't just drift into being a good spouse. If anything, if we get lazy, we just do nothing. We're going to drift towards being a bad spouse. So we have to make a conscious effort to know what does it mean to be a good spouse? How do I love my wife? How could I do things for her and serve her? Because we're not going to wake up in the morning and just do it, right? Same way with taking care of our bodies. It's the same way with spiritual disciplines. It's like we're not just going to wake up and do it. We have to just make it a priority in our lives and, and constantly discipline ourselves to do it, do it. It's a struggle at times to abide in God, but it's a worthy struggle. And we're going to fail, but as long as we're failing forward, God is good with that. So the question I have for you to think about for a second is, how do we abide in God? Like, how do we abide in God? Like, what's some practical steps? Like, Pastor, I like what you're saying. I want to do it. Show me how. I'm going to write it down in those free journals in the back, if there's any left, and I will do it, or I'll put it in a note in my phone. All right, because some people use those notes in their phone. But how do we do that? Do you guys ever think about this question? And if we are saved, which we have the Holy Spirit, we should be asking this question. And I'll give you a simple answer, and then I'll give you a more complex answer, okay? The simple answer as, as I always said, usually the simple answer is usually the right answer. The most easiest answer and most obvious answer is usually the right one. The right one is this, is having a quiet time with God every day. Now, you might think I'm like, maybe, hey, you're being dogmatic, you're being, you're being uh, legalistic, but I think having a quiet time with God every day is vitally important to our growth in Christ. If you want to do a daily confession with God, um, if you don't set that time aside to pray, thank God, ask for things, confess your sins, read the Bible, I mean, it's just not going to happen, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but does everybody else have like a crazy busy life? Everybody, I mean, I, we are crazy busy. Our kids are in sports. You know, yesterday we, were at, we had two games. We have missional community, which is great this week. We have elder meetings. We have worship rehearsals. We have church. We have chili cook-offs, for goodness sakes. We have just here, there's so much. And in your own lives, there's so much happening, and I get it. And if we don't intentionally set that, it's just never going to happen. And so having a a set-aside time where we can withdraw and be alone with God is vitally, vitally, vitally important. I call them devotions. You call them quiet times. You might call them spiritual disciplines. It doesn't really matter as long as you're doing it, of getting alone with God, praying, reading his word. I do mine in the mornings after I drop the kids off at school at 8. I have the luxury to do mine at like 8.15. But if I didn't have that, I got up earlier before school and did it. Um, And so I do them for about a half hour, and I just get alone with God. Get alone with God. Devotions are tools, nothing more, to help you abide in Christ. Reading your Bible is a way to know the heart of God. 
Reading your Bible shouldn't be a robotic task. It's a way that we could see the character and heart of God on every page, and it's good. And praying is the biggest gift as God has given us. God has given us a direct hotline to his ear, and we could use it at any time we want. And how many of us go days and days without talking to the creator of the universe, even though he's blessed us with a hotline, right? I always say this, God is a phone call away. And it's even easier than a phone call because you don't have to like press the buttons. You don't have to, you know, all those things. You don't have to like all those things. Like he's there, he's waiting. Prayer is one of the biggest gifts God has given his church and really the most neglected gift God has, that the church has been given. So those are a few different ways that we abide in God. <clears throat> Excuse me. But according to what we are reading, do you know what else is like vitally important to this whole process? Yes. I don't know who said that, but good. Loving one another. So it's not only are you supposed to be reading your word, not only are you supposed to be praying, not only are you supposed to be doing all those good things and being with God, but he's like, there's another piece to that, and it's loving one another. Right? So if you're doing all those things and you're not loving one another, we're missing the mark, right? We're like missing the boat. When we choose to love one another, we're living out the nature of God. In verse 12, it says this, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The way John writes this is, Hey, nobody has seen God, but if you love one another... God is certainly seen through your actions. Does that make sense? When you take a meal to family promise and make meals for homeless people out of heart of love, you make it by yourself, you prepare it by yourself, nobody sees it, nobody sees it but the sign-up sheet, you deliver it, nobody sees it, the people, the people thank you and take it, and they might not ever see those people again. But when you do that, God is seen and shown through you. Does that make sense? It might not feel like that. You might not get any notoriety for doing that. But God is seen through your love. So if you want to show the world God, many of us want to do that. And maybe we're not the most gifted evangelists in the world or don't know how to articulate. If you want to show the world God, love one another. Amen? Like, show the love of God to everybody. Like, radical love, good love, like, like true love. Love is a picture of who God is. And when you love someone, you are having a supernatural experience of God, and God is happy when every time you show love to a person. Look at what it says in verse 16, the first part of verse 16. It says this, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is uh, a number of times, this is in God's word, is God is love. God isn't just loving. God doesn't have, like, attributes of love. Like, the very essence of God is love. So as people in the world, as, as people who know and believe and trust the one true God and know and believe the true Bible, like the true word of God, we know that there is no love without knowing God, right? How could somebody really know what love is if they don't know God? They don't, because God is love. He's the author of love. Um, this, is, this is the thing. Love originated in God, right? 
love, any form of love is, a, is from God, right? Because God is love. So love originated with God, was manifested in Jesus Christ, his son, and it's displayed in his people. Love was originated in God, manifested in Jesus, and displayed in his people. When we love people in the name of Christ, we are abiding in God. And when you choose to love one another, God is high and lifted up. So let's think about this real, like loving your husband or wife is showing who God is. Not only that, loving your children and being a good parent is showing who God is. Both vitally important. And not only that, loving one another here at Jericho Road Church. Right? And that's one of our big things we're trying to do better this year is like, is just having fellowship, having love for one another. Like the J-Road table that many of you are in is awesome. And it gets us as a way to love one another. And my question is, is like how come in the church relationships are so, so disposable? Like how come in the church, like people like have been in church for a while, they've been mingling, and then it just takes the slightest offense and then that person is like never seen from again. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? And as pastors or people who have been in ministry for any amount of time, you kind of just see that. It's like, man, like I, like I never want to do that. Like I still talk to people from my old church and they still check in on me. And, you know, like we work, like if you're going to be a part of any church, if you're going to be part of any organization, I don't care if it's a rotary club or your neighborhood association, or a bowling team, you are going to have somebody offend you along the way. And what you need to do is put on your big boy pants or your big girl pants and say, I love you. I want to talk to you about it to get it resolved so we can move on. And the first time that somebody maybe slightly offends us, we are done with that person, right? Or we're just done with that church. And it's like, guys, this is everywhere you go. <laughs> like, in the church, should be the one to have extra grace, right? With extra mercy, extra care and love for these offenses. And I know some people aren't going to be your best friends. That's cool. We're not saying, like, everybody's got to be your best friend. But if there's offense, like, it needs to be just worked on and move on, right? And we do this all the time, and it's good. The Bible says, out of adversity, a brother is born. And so if you want to have a like a close, close friend, there's going to be a little bit of adversity. There's going to be a little bit of that, hey, let's work this out and get past that. So, um, but love is the utmost important thing. So 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says this, and I'm kind of jumping to 1 Corinthians. This is Paul writing this, but I think it's good to put somewhere in this message. Paul is talking about the importance of love, and he says this, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, what am I? I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, Meaning, if I give away all my possessions and all my money and sell my house and give it to the poor, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain absolutely nothing. 
What does that tell us? Above all, we need to be people of love. And like love has just got to be at the forefront of our mind. And so I say all that because if you are studying the Bible and you understand it so well, you're doing great. If you're praying and you, man, you feel like that's going well, that's great. If you don't have love, it's really saying essentially you're gaining nothing if you don't have love for one another because God is love. And so God should be shown through us in love. So very important that we remember that. <clears throat> How can we love one another better? So as we know, 1 John is a book about, part of a book about combating false teachers. So there was false Christians, people saying they were Christians and they really weren't. So Paul was trying to say, hey, who's the real believers and who is like the wolves in sheep clothing, all right? And back then, in the churches starting out, you had a lot of that, right? Like, and even today, we have a lot of people who may be in church and maybe think they're a Christian, but they're really not. And so he's saying that this is kind of like a test. If somebody's going to teach you, like some are obvious, some may not. But here's, here's the test for identifying true believers from our passage today. Number one, do they confess that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Okay? It says in verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And so do these believers, do you confess that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Uh, number two, do you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? In 1 John 4.15, it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is God. And the connotation here is that when you say Jesus is the Son of God, it means that he was equal with God, and he was God, and he was God incarnate here on earth. And you're saying, yes, I believe that. And so usually when we baptize people, we want to ask these first two questions to make sure they fully understand what they are doing. Does that make sense? Make sure they get it. Make sure they understand. Um, and even like when we tell people, when people become J-Road partners, they have to share their testimony of how they came to Jesus. And we want to hear these parts. Like if their testimony is, is like, hey, I want to be a better person, and so I want to go to church. I'm like, my first thought in my mind is like, do you know Jesus? And if you don't, I'll tell you. But we want to make sure people understand what they're doing um, and not just, hey, I want to go to church to be a better person. But they confess that Jesus is the Son of God and he's the Savior of the world. And the third is, um, the third is do you obey the teachings of Jesus? Um, your confession is true, and the first two are true and proven because you obey the teachings of Jesus right? Because really anybody could say the first two things, right? But if you're not obeying the teachings of Jesus, Paul, or John says in chapter 2, a couple of verses later, he says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So he's saying you could say you believe in Jesus, you can say you believe Jesus truly is the Son of God. Those first two are great, but Jesus says that the demons believe that, and they're going to hell. Like, it's okay to, it, we can believe that, but if we don't actually obey what the, what the Word says and what Jesus says, then we're no different than lost people. So it's confession of those things is good, but it's also obeying the teachings of Jesus. And I don't know if you guys know this, but the teachings of Jesus were like buck wild. Right? Like, they were radical, crazy 
things that are very hard to keep, right? Like when Jesus came on the scene and he's teaching on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, like, hey, the Ten Commandments say adultery is a sin, right? Like adultery is a sin. And all the Pharisees are like, yeah, I know that. I've never committed adultery. And he said, yes, but if you look at a woman and you lust for her in your heart, you've already committed adultery against your spouse. It's like, whoa. So you're saying I can't even look and think? That's adultery? Yes. And he's saying, like, hey, the, the Ten Commandments says do not murder. <clears throat> they're like, yeah, I've never killed anybody. He says if you hate your brother just in your heart and mind, you're a murderer. Right? So, you, so, so you're already, if you've ever done those two things, then you're a murderer and an adulterer in God's eyes. And Jesus did that to draw people to himself. He wanted people to say, what do I do to be saved then? He said, you're a hopeless sinner. You already understand that part, right? Yes, I already know I'm a murderer and adulterer. What do I do to be saved? And Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. In a year, I'm going to go to a cross and die. Three days later, I'm going to raise again to pay those penalties that I just mentioned. And if you believe in me and confess me, you will be saved. Amen? And that's the gospel. You can't keep these standards. We're going to try, and we get better. It's called sanctification through our whole life. But that's why Jesus died, to forgive us of all of our sins. And, and not just that, but look at the teachings of love that Jesus says. He's saying, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, like, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other cheek and offer him the other cheek to slap. If somebody asks for your coat and says, hey, can I have your coat? What does it say you're supposed to do? Give him your shirt, too. Like, oh, okay, well, here's my coat. I know that's Gucci. I just paid for it. It's $1,000, but you could have it. Nobody here has Gucci. What should I think of something? North Face. Okay, this is North Face. This is $100. He's saying, give him your coat, and then also give him the shirt off your back. Right? And then he says, it's good that you love your friends. That's great. Everybody does that. Good for you. <laughs> Jesus sort of says that. What does he say? Love your enemies. Love the people that mistreat you and hurt you and forgive them. And he's saying, that is obeying the teachings of Jesus. Amen? Like, man, those are the people that are the hardest to love. The, yes. Think about the hardest people to love, and that's who we're supposed to love. And it really, the people that God puts in your path, um, and man, forgiving how many times am I supposed to forgive this person, Lord? They, they hurt me seven times. Should I, for, should I forgive them eight times? He says, no, 70 times, 70 times. 70 times, seven times. And then more beyond that. And so it's just so radical because he says, God is love. If you want to come close to loving like God, this is what you have to do. Loving your enemies. You know who loves their enemies more than anybody? God, Jesus. The people who spit in Jesus's, or the people who spit in God's only son's face, slapped him across the face, bloodied his back, nailed him to a cross. God says, I'm saving you too. You just beat and crucified and massacred my son, but I love you too. And I'm going to forgive you. 
Does that comprehend with us, church? It's like if somebody did that to my son, I would struggle my whole life to forgive, even though I know I should. And God sent his son knowing that he would forgive the people who did that to him. So he's saying, you must forgive one another. You must forgive one another. And so it says in verse 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. It says, we love because he first loved us. And God's love for us causes us to do a number of things, okay? Um, and I think it's, it might be on the next slide here. It says this, God's love, first and foremost, and Brian said this last week, it causes us, it should lead us to forgive others for what I just said, for what the Word says, and what Pastor Brian said last week. <laughs> Here's the stone-cold truth just laid, cut, and dry for you. The Bible says if you refuse to forgive someone, you're not a Christian. It's like you're not even a believer if you don't forgive somebody. And so that's like a major heart check. It's like, oh, what do I got to do now? It's like we got to forgive. We got to forgive. And if there's anybody that we said, I refuse to forgive, we got to make that right. Because that's what the word says. Um, God's love gives us confidence. It says in 1 John 4, 17 in our passage today, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. This confidence that he talks about that we should have is for the end of life. And many of us, uh, end of life is like one of the scariest things. And I get it. It's hard. Um, I've been to hospice places many times. I've done over 50 funerals in my ministry uh, so far, and end of life is hard. And I enjoy funerals because they give us a reminder, and funerals give us pastors and elders and churchgoers uh, validity to everything we do. Because we're all living for that last day here on earth, right? Like, that's what we do everything. That's why I'm a pastor. That's why you guys are here today, because of that end. And here's the thing with death, and I don't mean to be morbid or depress anybody, but it's just a matter of when. It's not a matter of if. Like, we're all going to have a funeral one day. Unless Jesus comes back. I get that, and I hope he comes back soon. But if Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetime, we are all going to have a funeral. We're all going to have a tombstone. We're all going to die. Which means we're going to pass from this life to the next. And so it's like, what's, what's that like? What's that like? Uh, is that, you know, it's very scary. But for those that are believers and that have Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. Amen? Like that is going to be a joyous day. And we got to get to the place where we're so excited about that. And the only reason I'm sad about it is the people I leave behind. But for me, I'm doing good because I have Jesus. Amen? And we know what will happen. It's saying you, don't, you can have confidence in your salvation for that day of judgment. And, and I just want to read uh, Revelation 20 because I think this has to do with judgment and it fits. Um, it says this, and this is talking about what John, who wrote 1 John, so the same author wrote Revelation when he was on the island of Patmos just serving out at the end of his days. He, he got these vision from the Lord of what, he was, what was to come. So in Revelation 20, it says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, 
and no place was found uh, for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, this is just a sobering verse of what's coming. And for those of us here, if you aren't following Jesus, if you have never accepted Jesus, it's like this is what the Bible says is the fate. Standing before the great white throne judgment, knowing that you had an opportunity to accept Jesus and you didn't take it. And when and they go to the, the book of life and they look back in the Z's and you see your name, it's not there. And you realize that you squandered your life and you didn't accept the free gift that Jesus offered on the cross. And that's a warning to those who aren't saved. And man, it's like, come to Jesus today. Surrender your life to him. He, all it is, as I said, it's a phone call away. All you have to do is accept him and confess your sins and ask Jesus to come into your heart and he will save you. It's as simple as that. Simple as surrendering your heart to him. And for all of us, it's saying we have confidence that our name is written in that book of life. For those of us, if we really study this, there's two throne judgments. There's the great white throne, which lost sinners are going to be judged against. And then there's the Bema seat judgment, which talks about in Scripture, is the rewards judgment seat. So we won't get judged by the things we've done because all of the stupid stuff we've done is covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen? We're going to be judged by the rewards judgment where we're going to be heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we are going to be given rewards. And then we will be, instead of cast in a lake of fire, we will be welcomed in to the new heavens and new earth where Jesus is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and we get to spend our life in the very presence of God. Amen? And then that life, there will be no funeral. There will be no tombstone. And we get to live forever and ever with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth. And that's good. Amen? And the last is this, and the worship team could come up and get set, is um, God's love expels fear. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect fear, but perfect love cast out fear. As believers, we have nothing to fear. We do not have to fear death. We do not have to fear the judgment. But also, we do not have to fear loving others. I don't know about you, but when we choose to love others, we are like making ourselves vulnerable, right? We you know a lot of people, like a lot of single folks are saying, hey, I went through a divorce. It was so bad. I'm never getting married again. And I can understand that. You don't want to get hurt again. And many people in the church are like, hey, I helped somebody and it really came back to bite me in the butt. So my walls are up. And what we're saying is I'm afraid to get hurt again. And he's saying, true love cast out all that fear. Amen? Like we should never fear when we are called to love somebody. When we choose to love others, there's, you know, there's rejection, there's hurt. 
And you might be saying, man, I've been hurt so many times by people getting close to me. So I'm not doing it anymore, right? I tried a small group before at my last church. It didn't go well. And what you're saying is, I'm never going to let anybody else get close to me. And God doesn't want that for you. We should not keep our walls up, and God does not want that. That, there, that is not love. And so I want to encourage you guys as a church. Number one, surrender your whole life to Jesus. If there's any part of his word and his teachings that you're not obeying, ask for forgiveness and give your heart to him. Number two, if you're doing that great, commit to loving one another. Whatever that looks like. If it's here on a Sunday morning, pray for and look for people that might need love. You know what? Even this morning, as a pastor, my eyes are always open. I might see somebody sitting out on those benches all by themselves. You might see somebody outside on the bench, you know, with their head down. You might see somebody sitting alone and God's saying, hey, why don't you go pray for that person? Why don't you go invite him to come sit next to you? Why don't you go ask that person how they're doing? And that is just sticking your neck out there and just showing love, right? And that's what I want is to encourage us to pursue diligently. Let me pray. God, we love you. And God, we just want to be people of, of love. We want to be a church that when people come here, they just sense that it's genuine. It's not fake. It's not mask. That we are real, God, but we are people that choose to love one another. God, we surrender all to you. God, we thank you for the confidence of those end, end days that we have to not fear nothing, that we just can rest in what you've already done for us on the cross. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said,